Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPADPOD, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon. Today I'm joined by Charles Tripp, Professor Emeritus of Politics with reference to the Middle East and North Africa at SOAS and a Fellow of the British Academy. Charles is the author of a number of books, articles, chapters, op-eds, and many other things in academia. He's the author of a wonderful book on Iraq, an incredible book on the power and the people uh, agency in the Arab uprisings and beyond. He's written on Islam and the moral economy. He's written on Saudi-Iranian relations, and he supervised a number of wonderful scholars in the field of Middle East studies. He's someone that I'm sure many of you have come across. He's a, a wonderful scholar, a wonderful gentleman, and I'm really pleased that he's joining us on the podcast today. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. Simon, thank you very much for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure, Charles. Your name has been on the list for a long time of people that I really wanted to talk to for this podcast, so I'm really pleased that we could make this happen. Oh, it's good. I'm reassured. <laughs> <laughs> Charles, can we uh, can we begin like I normally do by by starting with just a question about why did why did you develop this interest in in the Middle East and, and North Africa? Well, I suppose it goes back to uh, childhood conditioning. I was born in Sudan and then brought up in the Middle East. My father worked in the Middle East. So uh, a lot of my childhood memories are to do with uh, the Gulf, uh, uh, Dubai, and then Bahrain. Um, And then uh, when I came to study politics at university, I didn't study Middle East politics. I studied politics as such. And uh, I think when I went on to specialize, uh, I thought that uh, the Middle East was the place that had the most reality for me in some ways. Sure. Can you tell us a little bit about those realities then from your from your childhood? Well, um, I, I don't remember the Sudan because uh, I was two when we left. So, right. <laughs> uh, and, but uh, I do remember quite clearly uh, Dubai, and that was in the 1950s. My father there was a political agent, and um, it was a Dubai which, of course, is wholly transformed. You can see little traces of it if you go back now near the creek. That's where our house was. Right. The creek. But... Um, Otherwise, everything has been completely overlaid. But it's a strong impression because it leaves you with things that you can't even necessarily articulate. Uh, I mean, there's the physical side of things, the look of things, the light, the smells, the sounds, but also, of course, the ways in which people interacted. And uh, they were extraordinarily, it seemed very hospitable in some ways. Of course, I was there as, in a privileged position uh, sure. as the son of the political agent, but yeah. uh, even so, there was something that one got a sense of, and, and equally in Bahrain. Bahrain was interesting, it was later in the 60s, and I remember very clearly um, one particular time, by then I was going to school in England and going out for holidays, and one Easter holiday, that's when they had the uh, uh, demonstrations and riots in Bahrain. Uh, against uh, the oil company, which right. had been differentially paying uh, uh, expatriates vis-a-vis local Bahrainis. And so they had uh, huge demonstration. In fact, I find myself, because the political agency then, and, and actually now, uh, it's even more so in town, uh, I wandered into the town and found myself involved in a demonstration. But again, I suppose one of my memories, I was, what, 10, year, 11, 12 years old, and uh, one of my memories is of the... Um, 
how friendly everyone was. You know, that you hear this extraordinary sound of breaking glass and yeah. shouts and chants and dust and people stamping. And luckily, there was not at that stage any uh, vicious repression of it. But the um, it was it could be quite a threatening noise from a distance. The closer you got to it, the more you realised these were ordinary people, and they were you know they concerned that you had a Coca Cola or had something to drink or you know there was there was a kind of um, a sociability about it, which, of course, for me, at 11-year-old, I didn't know what the issues were at all. Um, so having having the phenomenon seeming threatening from the distance uh, began to seem something altogether more human, uh, yeah, close-up. Wow. And I suppose that's part of, again, it, I, I don't want to be pretentious, but it, it lays a seed about thinking about, well, how does one think about the political beyond the grand gestures and movements to actually human human life yeah of course yeah that must have been such an incongruent time then given splitting your time between between the uk and and the gulf and and grappling with with the the experiences of protest and revolution with the the perceptions that you've just articulated but then the realities of the the friendliness well, yes, I think that was that was part of it. I mean, one of the things uh, my parents said, one of the reasons I, I became attracted to the Middle East is that I was at a boarding school in England on the Welsh Shropshire border, and my chief memories of that school are being hungry and cold. And so <laughs> right. suddenly in the middle of December or the middle of March, you got on a plane and arrived yourself in Bahrain. So, of course, the Middle East was always going to see, seem a lot more attractive than the Welsh hills. Um, but uh, there was a, an element of that. I think the politics of but of course, I was aware of through my father's uh, rank as political agent, uh, but only in a in a very sort of uncritical way, as one is. Yeah. But curious, because things seemed strange. I mean, I remember later in the day of those demonstrations, watching from up the agency, the, the uh, bus depot in uh, Maharak was set on fire. And so I saw this very dramatic um, uh, glow. And, and I do have a memory of we were just sort of fascinated as children watching and of course there was an incredible sort of bustling in and out of the because we lived above the office and so uh, all the British officials and Bahraini officials were all deeply concerned it wasn't going to get worse and worse and so it was an incredible feeling of sort of beehive activity while we just watched and said this is interesting this is curious um, yeah. as you could say spectators to a demonstration yeah wow that's that's fascinating we could talk about this all day Charles I'm, I'm absolutely <laughs> intrigued by that and maybe we'll have to get you on to, to do a childhood memory special sometime. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> can I ask, what was it then? I mean, th there must be so many different answers to this question, but, but was there one particular moment that, that pushed you to, to want to then study politics at, at university, to read politics? Um, I think so, because I, at school I'd done languages, right. and I felt that uh, English, German, French, and I... I felt I'd got as far as I wanted to get, and I wanted to get two things through it. And I think one of the things, reading uh, 19th century French and English novels, reading uh, works by Goethe and everything, it, it was often the power, both in a kind of intimate connection in families, but also major historical event, events, the back, you know, which formed like the, uh, the background to Flaubert's novels and stuff. And so there was something really interesting about politics and power. I, I don't think I, I'd even articulated it, but it did seem to me that when I thought of what I want to go on to do as an undergraduate at university, uh, politics and philosophy seemed more interesting than just carrying on with languages, because 
I could use the language to get at an understanding of the politics, but it was the politics that interested me. Sure, okay. But there was no particular light bulb moment, so to speak, where you realised this is what I want to do with my, with my further studies? No, I think that came towards the end of my undergraduate okay. uh, life at, at university with the realisation that after three years, I only felt I'd just begin to scratch the surface. Yeah. It wasn't exactly a light bulb moment. It felt, is that it? You know, and, and a feeling that I want to do something more. So that's why I went on to do the master's. Sure. So uh, what, what, what direction did you go into with the master's and then, then later the, the PhD? Well, the master's was uh, uh, building on the politics that I'd done right. uh, uh, as an undergraduate and then going to SOAS to do the master's in, well, it wasn't called Middle East politics then, it was called Asian politics. You could follow different streams. But basically, I did a master's in Middle East politics and the discipline of politics. So it was the two together sure. uh, within that. And so that's when the specialization, it was during my study for the master's that I got talked into applying for a PhD. I must admit that a PhD didn't seem the natural thing to do because the master's was really interesting and I felt it was getting somewhere. But uh, again, one could argue this was in the 70s. There was a more relaxed view about careers. I mean, I look at my own children and they're preoccupied. They're never going to get a job, you know, and, and it seems much more anxious. And I look at what, how postgraduate students prepare themselves now, far more conscientious and directed and goal-oriented than we ever were. So there was a sense of which... Uh, you know, a PhD seemed a really interesting possibility. And if there was funding for it, so much the better. Fantastic. For more general days. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Charles, can you tell us a little bit about your PhD then, please? Well, the, the uh, PhD was shaped to some extent by my supervisor, who was PJ Vatikiotis, who was the, the, uh, at SOAS then. He taught me during my master's. And, of course, his work had been primarily on Egypt, and uh, Egyptian politics struck me as, I, I, I think I've got rid of that now eventually, but there is a sense in which anybody who studies Egypt as well as Egyptians themselves think it's the center of the world and everything else mm. is kind of bitty, you know, uh, as, as Egyptians say rather contemptuously of other Arab states, tribes with flags. But I think that <laughs> yeah. uh, I managed to get away from that a bit now. But, the, but then I think Egypt did seem, uh, fantastically interesting in all sorts of ways, modern Egypt, historical. And then the question is, uh, if you're going to do research in Egypt in the 70s under Sadat's uh, regime, um, as now in different ways, how, how much can one get, as it were, serious primary sources from doing the very contemporary. So that's why, and with Vatikios' advice and also his, his actual interest, I, I looked at the 1930s and 40s in Egyptian politics. Right. Um, and so I could have a more, if you like, documentary base, as well as some interviews, but I mean, it was mostly uh, from the British and <laughs> eventually through various struggles, the Egyptian archives that I would be using uh, the material for the PhD. So it, it was a kind of practical side of things. But in terms of a topic, it was a topic that um, I never published as a book, but I think that uh, it has lots of resonance, which is basically, how do you make autocracy popular? That was the challenge of the particular um, Egyptian politician I was looking at, Ali Maher Bersha, who was uh, King Farouk's um, head of the royal court and then became prime minister. And he was trying to popularize, if you like, uh, carry out a populist um, program at a time when he realized that the British were retreating and 
uh, Farouk would be left, the king would be left by himself, as it yeah. were, to try and forge a new kind of social contract. Um, he failed eventually, as, as we all know, but uh, it was an interesting experiment. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? I mean, it sounds so so pertinent to what what we're experiencing across well across global politics today. That that I'm sure many are screaming at you to publish it or get something out of it. But um, it would be rather different. I mean, clearly Ali Maha had to cope with the British presence, which was military occupation and interventions at, at every turn and of course that's why he he failed uh, because of the, the British effectively um, uh, ensured that he lost the premiership but the, the I think what he was concerned about was that here was a king that he believed he wasn't actually necessarily a great admirer of the person of the king but he thought um, that the monarchy was the most best guarantee of the social order in Egypt at the time and realised that the British going then uh, the monarchy needed to do two things to reinforce itself. One was to uh, create a, a base of mass popular support. And so he cultivated uh, the emerging sort of proto-fascist movements at the time, young Egypt, uh, in uh, in Egypt beyond the parliament. Uh, so in a sense, street politics, mass politics. Of course, they weren't that large, but yeah. it was certainly within that. And the other was he cultivated the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, because uh, that was part of his twin strategy. It seems improbable now, but there was a great campaign in the 30s uh, to portray Farouk as the next caliph of all the Muslims because the caliphate was up for grabs, as it yeah. were. It had been abolished by the Turkish government uh, parliament in the 1920s. And so there were a lot of contenders, and Farouk, cultivated by Ali Maha and by Sheikh Marari, who is the Sheikh al-Azhar, uh, was, uh, was seeking to create of him an Islamic prince and uh, prince of the faithful, effectively. And so he, you have this mass adulation orchestrated, uh, obviously, uh, by Ali Maha in the late 30s uh, and early 40s. So you have those two twin sort of populist themes and a kind of strident exclusivist Egyptian nationalism and a mass Islamist uh, appeal. But of course, he also knew that you had to cultivate the army. And so he created a secret officer organization within the army uh, to ensure that the loyalty would be to the monarchy, not to anyone who happened just to be the government of Egypt. Um, and ironically, a lot of the people who became free officers were involved in that originally in the 1940s. Fascinating. It's really fascinating. And again, this is something that we could spend a long time talking about. <laughs> but unfortunately, uh, given time constraints, I fear we, we, we must move on, sadly. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Charles, what, what, uh, what did life bring you after the thesis then? Where did you go? Well, before I finish the thesis, which is probably a mistake, but it's the way it happens, uh, the possibility of a job at the International Institute for Strategic Studies came up. So here was I who had been studying 1930s and 40s Egyptian politics, although obviously interested about politics, finding myself at this uh, think tank, which still goes strong, uh, um, looking at um, Egypt, Sudan and Libya and their contemporary politics and relations. And then in the second part of my term there was looking at the um, uh, relations between the superpowers and the Arab world. So working on those things in a very different atmosphere, which actually was quite exciting at the time, although a lot of the people there were working on very, what you might call heavyweight 
nuclear issues rather yeah. than, and, and they were completely preoccupied by weapons systems and things, which of course passed me by. But there was a, there was a, a, a cohort of us who were more interested in the politics uh, and international politics. And it was from there that I got a job in Geneva for three years as the assistant director of the program for strategic and international security studies, which was, again, um, a, uh, a wonderful place. It was at the, uh, what's now called the, it was called the HAE, the uh, Graduate Institute of International Studies, and now it's the Graduate Institute of International Studies and Development or something, but it's it, it's basically an IR postgraduate um, institution for research and postgraduate teaching. And it was, it was a great experience. Um, and it was there uh, that I became interested in Iraq through a colleague who was working there, Sharon Chubin, uh, who was working on Iranian politics, and it was at the time of the Iran-Iraq war. So that's how I got drawn into looking at uh, Iraq thereafter. Well, that's that's flagged up two things that I wanted to talk to you about, actually, because I, the first time that I encountered your work, Charles, was was a piece that you co-wrote with Sharam Chubin on Saudi-Iranian relations. Oh, and, yes, that's right, yeah. And that With was... The IXS, I think, yeah. Exactly, yeah. That was my, my way in to, to your work, and it was it was fascinating, given that by that point, I, I, was, I started my thesis in, in the early 2000s, and there was very little work on on this topic at that point. Mm. So it struck me that that was a, a glaring omission. So I was really pleased to find that, that you'd done this, this really fascinating bit of scholarship with, with Sharam Chubin. Yeah, it's very kind of you to say so, but it's very short. It's a short it sort of yes. think piece, really. Um, but it, it came out of the work we'd done uh, on the uh, Iran-Iraq war, because obviously both of us looking at the Iran-Iraq war, uh, both from domestic politics of Iran, domestic politics of Iraq, but also, of course, their regional and foreign relations, couldn't help but notice that there was clearly uh, a problem. Of course, Saudi Arabia wasn't as... Um, regionally powerful or influential then as it became as it has become but it there was still a sense in which the, they were seen to be the um, uh, if you like the the protectors yeah. <laughs> sort of of the other side of the gulf and so the the clash was bound to come uh, in some form and indeed had happened during the during the iran iraq war itself in the waters of the gulf so there was something quite interesting to be looked at in that and then on top of that of course there was the ideological um uh, division between uh, an islamic republic claiming to speak for all muslims not just for shia muslims and of course a protector of the two holy places who was claiming to speak for all muslims not just sunni muslims so yeah. there was a they were sort of on the same turf as as we saw very tragically often uh, in the experiences of the Hajj uh, exactly, at various yeah. moments. Exactly. I mean, it strikes me and and others looking back on, on the literature on this topic that it's so very important and there were so many so many sort of moments where it seemed that that the two were interacting with one another and there was there was so so much friction but yet there was so little focus on it so i was really pleased to see that that someone and indeed you were were ahead of the game on that and fortunately scholarship is catching up now well of course <laughs> but the interesting thing is i mean as the more one says as you know yourself is that there are lots of pragmatic reasons for cooperation. So it's, I mean, some people try and attribute the um, 
the hostility between the two as being sort of embedded in a kind of ideological sectarian history. Uh, but equally, there's some of it to do with the logic of regional influence and regional hegemony, uh, which existed under the Shah as much as under exactly. uh, the Ayatollahs. So I think there's a, a, a consistency there about being powerful states in a small neighborhood. Um, and wanting to exert their power in some form or another, they're bound to clash, but not necessarily hostile. I mean, one of the things that was quite interesting is that how Saudi Arabia and Iran, I don't follow it now, but used to cooperate rather effectively in OPEC, for instance, mm. uh, because they both had a common interest at stake. And I think that there were other areas of cooperation that uh, became uh, turned on or off, depending on what else was happening in their relations. Exactly. Yeah, there's so much at play. And, and I must thank you personally for, for really helping me on my way with that. So thank you, Charles. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and you, you mentioned that, uh, that Sharam got you interested in, in Iraq as well. What was it about Iraq that, that piqued your interest? Well, I think uh, originally, in fact, when I was at SOAS, uh, there was a wonderful um, professor there called Abbas Khalidah, who sadly passed away this year, um, who uh, was Iraqi by origin and had a wonderfully, if you like, um, cynical, but in some ways realistic view of Iraqi politics. And this was, of course, the 70s when people were extolling what the Ba'ath was doing to Iraq at the time. Um, the transformation of it. This is the time when there was the, the thriving the Iraqi cultural center on the Tottenham Court Road and uh, exhibitions and lots of things happening uh, externally that seemed to be showing Iraq to be a really uh, developing country in a way that um, uh, was not yet overshadowed by war, although, of course, there was a ruthless dictatorship uh, pursuing it, but it had a very good PR strategy. So there was something about Iraqi politics, which was interesting, but I never pursued that uh, except through his classes at SOAS. And when I was in Geneva, both Shara and I was in Geneva in 1983 to 86, and 1884, it was extraordinary. We felt that no one was writing anything, actually, about the Iran-Iraq war. There was this war going on, which was phenomenal and horrendous. And yeah. only when there was a kind of major offensive uh, would the newspapers cover it, and then it would just go to sleep again. And no one was writing any serious academic work about it uh, on either side. I mean, it was just it was a, a curious absence. And so Sharam and I decided to... Um, uh, to, to, to work on it. And of course, it made sense for me to work on Iraq, although I didn't know Iraq very well before at all. Uh, I'd only been there once briefly. Um, and then for Sharam to work on the Iranian side, uh, do with language sources, access, and all the rest, uh, and also interest. Um, and the more I studied Iraq, of course, the more interested I became in a, in a quite appalled way at certain moments. But it was certainly during the war, uh, it showed much of the what you might call the, the sinews of Iraqi politics. I mean, some people talk about revolution as being a phenomenon that allows you to see what really makes a politics of a state and society tick, because it, it strips things bare. Yeah. And you could argue that a war of the scale that Saddam was conducting against Iran uh, threw lots of things into relief and, uh, in a sense, stripped bare aspects of Iraqi politics, society, interactions, state, uh, that really had been difficult to, to perceive before then. Right. Of course, it wasn't the easiest place to go and do field work. Of course, <laughs> yeah, of course. 
but obviously you did you you did a, a wonderful um, amount of work on this and and you ended up publishing this fantastic book a history of iraq published by cambridge right yes which that is... was kind of a challenge to me as a political scientist because i think up to before i embarked on the history of iraq I'd written lots of stuff about, obviously, the Iran-Iraq war, the Ba'ath Party, Saddam Hussein, characteristics of Iraqi state. But, of course, all of them uh, had behind them lots of assumptions about how Iraqi history operated. You know, what was a legacy from before? What was something that had been a real innovation? What kinds of passions and resentments had uh, percolated or reproduced themselves? What was the structure of the political economy? All these things that, in a sense, when you write about contemporary politics, you're often making lots of possibly untested assumptions about one's own idea about how history works mm-hmm. and how power works through time. And of I course. think that uh, the, the the suggestion, and this was a suggestion made to me by the by Cambridge, to write a history of Iraq, seemed to be a, a, a good challenge because it would test my own prejudices and assumptions about what had been happening in pre-Ba'athist Iraq, which I didn't, I hadn't studied uh, in any great detail before. Can we just briefly reflect on on that process for you then? You, you've acknowledged that it was it was a challenge, a positive experience to reflect on some of these prejudices. But how did you go about it, and to what extent do you think you you had to to address those prejudices? Well, I think it's the process that we're all involved in in some ways. If you're trying to explain something. Um, social explanation requires you to be as clear as possible about what you assume the connections are between a series of events over time or a series of events. What's what's having an impact on it and why? And I think that um, in doing that, you can't help but be self-critical. You can't help but... Uh, Realize that what you had assumed to be an explanation wasn't an explanation at all. It was just an assumption about how things worked. Uh, and so I think the more uh, you try and explain social and political events, the more you have to reflect upon your own uh, ideas about what causes them, what's really at stake. So it's in a sense, it's the idea of you know looking at yourself to see where you come from. Uh, before you start pronouncing about or trying to explain uh, the behavior of, of others. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think it's something that, that we're all, as you say, trying to grapple with in our own ways. And given the, the precarious nature of, of global politics and contemporary life, I think it's both incredibly important, but also increasingly challenging to do that. Oh, yeah, very. And I think it's it's really necessary because, but it, it is challenging because it's not just the obvious prejudices about, um, uh, in the sense of thinking, uh, oh, I, I, um, I don't rate uh, ideology or I don't rate religion or I don't rate political economy. You know, those are, those aren't, those aren't the, the key things. The key things are often, how do I even know when I'm encountering a political phenomenon? How would I know that this is something that matters in politics. And that for that, you have to understand both what people are thinking at the time. It's, it's the, the, um, the Weberian sort of uh, uh, notion of Verstehen, which is actually trying to think yourself into the position of another person, another pe- people, another region, is incredibly difficult because then you do come across, you know, as we know from Orientalism and the other notions of how knowledge is created from positions of power, you do come across things that you've taken for granted 
that may actually tell you more about yourself than about the yeah. uh, country that you're trying to look at. So I agree with you. I think it, it's a constant struggle about uh, method, about epistemology, and about self-positioning. Of course, yeah, and that, that point about position, positionality is so very important. But I should just say that I think you've done a wonderful job of passing on those those lessons and and those those pointers given your your wonderful body of of former phd students who are now shaping various disciplines so i I think it's it's really wonderful that that you've done that and and i continue to learn from both your work and everyone else's on a on a almost daily basis well it's very kind of you to say i mean that's one of the most encouraging uh, things uh, as an academic it's not simply writing and publishing your own ideas but actually trying to get people enthused about the way in which you think about things and to question you <laughs> as it were to to question your own views so it becomes part of the the notion so to be able to transmit that through um, supervision or teaching uh, whether at PhD masters or an even undergraduate level uh, I think is one of the more gratifying aspects of it and if it seems to have um, uh, paid off as it were uh, it certainly produced some outstanding scholars not that I produce them they produce themselves but I, I think with a spirit of uh, uh, of as it were something that I hope that I set in motion when they first came as my PhD students. Well, I, I don't think that's in doubt at all, Charles. Um, not at all. And Charles, we've taken up a lot of your time, and unfortunately that means that I won't get a chance to talk to you about Islam and the Moral Economy, which I think is a wonderful book. Um, but I want to talk about the one that followed it, if I may. Uh, The Power and the People, Paths of Resistance in the Middle East, which is absolutely wonderful. It's one of my my favorite books on the Arab uprisings. And I was fortunate enough to to hear you talk about it when you came to Lancaster a few years after it was published. Uh, And I think it's such a a wonderful articulation of the role of agency in, in uprisings and the protests that had largely been ignored and continues to be, I think, largely overlooked. So, can you tell us a little bit about what it was that you, what, what is you, what it was that you tried to do with the book, and and what prompted it, please? Well, it's very kind of you to say those things, but I think that, uh, ironically, the book, uh, or perhaps appropriately, the book actually had its um, genesis in about 2007-2008, right. um, when I began to develop a course on the politics of resistance at SOAS. So it was a a course which. Uh, tried to look at exactly the things that you mentioned, the things that often had gone unremarked um, through macro analysis uh, of one form or another. Uh, So looking at the ideas, the views, the the histories, the belief systems, uh, and how agency is expressed even in the most improbable places sometimes, but also uh, in ways that are often neglected. So the the book itself came out of uh, a year or so, two years of teaching that course, and the responses of the students. So that's why in the book I thank my first guinea pig class for the (laughs) course, because it was really not only finding that some of the issues that I had raised inspired people or provoked them in one form, but it was getting their feedback as well. So I think that the hope is that a book like that was something which was trying to identify the ways in which power 
or people work against the grain of established power and established ideas and trying to see the very many forms it takes without being naive about what it results in. So the, the irony was that um, the uprisings across the Arab world burst out when I was in the middle of writing the book. And so, uh, of course, in some cases, one might argue, well, you can see where the the um, uh, the origins of this lie, but one didn't want to be too, um, if you like, self-confirmatory to say, yeah, oh, well, of course sure. it happened there because this happened there. So, and, and uh, you know, the more I knew about Egypt or Palestine or, or Tunisia or wherever, you realize, of course, and what I've been studying had been a a history of dissidents, a history of um, people not accepting it as it was, people who are agents, people who aren't simply passive uh, subjects of regimes. And of course, one of the surprising things in 2010-2011 was that it came together in so many places in a way that made it irresistible for the regimes, although they fought back, as we know, horrifically in many places. But it became something that had been, perhaps in other times, uh, quite isolated. So you'd had a demonstration here, a riot there, uh, a manifestation there. And so I became increasingly interested in seeing, not trying to time things, but trying to say, well, you've had these extraordinary uprisings of people aspiring for effectively dignity in one form or another across the Arab world and self-respect. And therefore, they have clear ideas about what, in a sense, constitutes them as a human being and as a citizen. Uh, and now they're trying to um, manifest it in the, in the public life. And of course, that's what they couldn't do before until they did it in a huge way in 2011. Uh, with greater or less degrees of success, as we know thereafter. So I think it was it it, it was 2010-11 uh, came during the writing of the book, but in a sense picking up many of the themes uh, that not just myself, many other people had written about in quite sort of. Um, discrete or separate areas of uh, Middle East, North African uh, politics and modern history. Sure, yeah. Um, and I think what we're continuing to see is the the ways in which this this agency that you've articulated is is playing out in, in creative ways, trying to find these new spaces that that have their roots not in something new that started six months ago, but in, in this long tradition of of expressing agency through creative means that you've you've articulated, I guess. Oh, very much. And I think the, the creativity of uh, people was often, of course, due to the fact that they had to find new modes of expression. Yes. Uh, modes that had been suppressed before. And of course, that often led to complete misunderstandings as well. So mm. people could innovate but and create, but then the message might be lost because people wouldn't know exactly what they were about. But what you see, of course, what strikes is, you know, visually strikes the eye, of course, is the extraordinary uh, creative output bursts across the Arab world in terms of visual art, performance, and so on, uh, which again, if one looked at uh, the ways in which artistic creation, the writers of novels and poetry had been writing ever since the turn of the century, or even before, you can see that many of the, the idioms are there, many of the resistances are there. Uh, but of course, what they didn't have was large numbers of people on the streets to, to take them forward. Of course. Charles, 
It's been an absolute pleasure. You've taken up so much of your time, but I've thoroughly enjoyed every second of it. I've got a long list of questions to ask you on a follow-up podcast at some point. <laughs> but I just want to say thank you. It's been it's been a real honor. I've I've really enjoyed it. Well, Simon, thank you very much indeed. I've enjoyed doing it, and um, I hope it wasn't uh, uh, too much of going on and on and on, and that it'll be some of some interest to some of the people who listen to the podcast. It certainly will. So thank you very much, Charles, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>